Catherine Latimer of the John Howard Society of Canada, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lawrence De Silva, an ex-federal prisoner who spent more than 19 years in federal custody. We are bringing you a series of podcasts titled Voices Inside and Out, in which former prisoners and others share their stories about prison life and returning to communities. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Joseph Lauren, who's got a very interesting story to tell. Joseph, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you. Uh, I guess if you want to know my background, in that, which is relevant to this uh, discussion, is that I am the first and unfortunately, or fortunately, still only Canadian to receive a federal sentence of imprisonment for insider trading. I engaged in that activity for about 15 years in Canada and the U.S., and it resulted in a uh, sentence of imprisonment uh, that uh, saw me go through the system through max to medium to min to two halfway houses and four jails. So I've wow. seen it all, sort of yeah. like the Forrest Gump of white-collar criminals, in a sense. Indeed, yes. Wow. So how long was your sentence? My sentence was three or three months, and I ended up doing it in one form of incarceration or another because of, I think, some failures in the system and a bit of maliciousness on some people's part. About 28 months of okay. that, which is quite, quite a bit ratio, a high ratio, I think, in Canada. I, I think it is for white-collar crime, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very much, yeah. Very interesting. Where did you start off? Uh, the, 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 the first place was uh, Millhaven Assessment Unit, so that was Millhaven. Nice. And then I, I, I went to Beaver Creek, a minimum after that. Then I was out on my own for a, uh, then I was halfway house for about uh, six months. Then I was out living for about eight or nine months, and I had my parole suspended. And the and then went through like four jails for that process. And then the parole officer upgraded my security, so I went to Kingston Pen and then up to medium. And then I won my parole suspension hearing, and the parole officer refused to do a community assessment of where I wanted to live, so they shipped me straight to a halfway house back downtown Toronto. And they kept me there until the community assessment, which the parole officers again refused to do. And then I appealed to the parole board. And right the day before that hearing happened, they, they let me lose. So with the whole system, wow. I saw sort of, I would argue, the abuses of the system for no good reason. Hey, can I just ask you, like, I, I'm, I'm hearing a, uh, a lot of, uh, of interactions with you and the parole officer. I know, I know that I was inside, but for listeners, it, it sounds like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't good relationships with you and, and these POs. Like, because yeah, every it, time it, you're it, appealing, then you're winning. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, but, true. like, why weren't they seeing that in the beginning? Like, was there... It, 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 I think it's very common. I think guys who have gone on parole believe that the parole, their time on parole is much harder than inside because someone's always looking over your shoulder and they're mm-hmm. always looking for reasons to fail. In mm-hmm. my case, I had switched parole officers. I had, I had a good relationship with my first parole officer. I switched to another one. And she revoked my parole within one hour of meeting me. Wow. She said in our interview, she wrote in the, in the, the A4D later on, she said, I told her I have a secret bank account. And, of course, part of my my, my, uh, my offense of all the United States, FBI, so I was interviewed for, by days by the RCMP, FBI, et cetera, and I disclosed all my brokerage accounts, my bank accounts, and they, cause they seized them all. So they had, yeah, they had yeah, an interest in keeping all my money. Yeah. So she just, I, you know, I, I, I would say, at best, I could say she accidentally heard that I had some secret bank account or she made that fact up. And we went to the parole uh, suspension hearing in front of the parole board. Yeah. I had all my documentation from the U.S. government that said they, they testified to the fact that I disclosed everything. Yeah. So, so there was you know, no. So there was, well, you don't strike me. You don't strike me as a, a, a you know a foolish man. So why why all of a sudden would you know would you just disclose to someone who you just met 
Yeah, I have some. They like seems like an agenda plot to me. I don't know, but and that's it. It's funny that when you go through the system, every, every uh, guard let's say oh, I'm alone with a guard at one point in time, they always ask me where the money is, like where to hide the money. So my yeah. line always was, "Well, if you find it, I'll split it with you." Like, yeah, yeah. There, there is no money. That I didn't yeah, there's none. Money. Like, come on. And, and in her case, I didn't even make that joke. She just wrote that down, and that and that sort of haunted me because by saying I have a secret bank account, yeah. it, they they upgraded my security because in a sense I could become a flight risk. I have some sort mm-hmm. of secret money somewhere mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. And that caused me a lot of difficulties. My time in Kingston Pen was very difficult. I was there for about a little over a month. That's when it was the my, TD unit. Sorry to interrupt. That was the TD. Yeah. I was in the last few months of mm-hmm. it. So at that point, uh, they weren't putting any money into maintenance. So we had the windows were broken. So we stuffed our shirts to the windows. It was February's freezing. The, the washer dryer was broken. As you probably know we were washing our clothes in the sink. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a really dark place. Yeah, very dark. Thank God it's closed now, but, um, you know. I went back for the tour, actually, to Kingston Penn. I went to go see my old cell there. Well, we'll, so tell, you, I'm, I, we'll tell you something yeah, amazing. So, we used to run we used to run MA Art out of there and work out of there, me and Catherine. Yeah, it was, oh, yeah. It was amazing. But, yeah, you went back to see your cell? Yeah, so I went back. So I'm, I'm on the tour, and uh, the guard, the guard, they had guards doing the tour of the Kingston Penn. And they said something like, uh, what do you think this is? And I, I said what it was. It was like the personal family uh, unit where people come for visits. And she goes, how would you know that? And I said, well, I did time here. And she says, oh, you were a guard here? I said, no, no. I wasn't <laughs> here. Also, she goes, wow, you're back. So actually, it's funny. It was after I left, she had told, told the other guards about that. So they all came to shake my hand on, on the way out. Nice. You know? nice. Yeah, nice. nice. So it was really, really nice. I, I yeah. want to put a good spin on the ex-inmates uh, visiting the prison kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Breaking, breaking in. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, so, so that, 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 that scene that I had there, is that I did a documentary afterwards about my time inside. And that's that scene of visiting Kingston Pen where I was, uh, was featured in the documentary. Well, we'd like to promote that because there's people that are listening. So if you'd like to, you know, give a shout out to that at the end of at the end of it or right now, sure. like that's that's all good. Well, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about it because it's a, it's an educational documentary focused on the unintended victims of white collar crime. Mm-hmm. In my case, uh, the people most impacted were my family and my co-accused who ended up committing suicide the day he was going to fly with me to New York to uh, be sentenced. So that's been the focus of the documentary. So. Uh, it's it's part of a continuing ed- education program for the Law Society and accounting accounting group, and I give different talks to different schools about it, and I put a spin on it. You know, like you might think about uh, committing a crime or do something immoral or illegal, but you'd never know where it leads because if, if I had known that my first step inside trading, my first deal, I made one hundred eighty one dollars, small amount, le- would eventually lead to the the suicide of my best friend, his son, who was uh, I, I love this little boy, lost his father. The impact on my own family. I've lost access to my son in my own case. So the, the unintended consequences of this, you know, small slippery sloped uh, step uh, was something neither of us uh, anticipated, obviously. And that's the focus of the documentary. Yeah, the criminal justice consequences are one thing, but there's a whole lot of things that flow from criminal activity. Yeah, uh, and that's I think that's what you know. At least white collar people don't think about. You know, they might think, well, what are the chances of me getting caught? Maybe not that high, but if I am, what are the impact? You, know, you lose your career. In our case, my my co-accused law firm in Toronto shut down. So all these people lost their jobs, also. So it's like you know, many many people were impacted, and, and neither of us had thought about that at any any point in time. Yeah, that's that's terrible. Yeah. I think that I think that documentary would be very informative for people. You know. Yeah, uh, it's a, you can find a you can find a, a trailer on it's called collardocumentary.com. You can anyone can type that in uh, in Google collardocumentary.com and they can see the trailer. And if they want to book a talk, it's, it's, you can go through that website also. Okay. Now, did you find that um, while you were making your progress through the criminal justice system, that your they were preparing you for release? Did you find that there was a concerted effort to 
on the part of the corrections authorities to prepare you, or did they think that you had the skill sets already that they would have? My answer can be very cynical. Do you want me to be my, my very cynical answer? I want your honest answer. Yeah. Okay, my honest answer is I don't think they care. Um, I, uh, you know, the, the, the services you, that I think people on the outside who don't know any, anyone who's been to prison think exist, you know, education programs right. or yeah. docking, everything. It doesn't happen. Like, uh, I know they'll do, they'll give you your, uh, before you leave prison, maybe twice a year, the institutions I've been, they come in and help you find your documents when, when you leave, you know, your maybe driver's license, things of that nature uh, when you get out. But if you don't catch it on those days, a lot of guys are released without proper ID. Oh, they sure are. Where yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. Or where they, where do they live? You know, if you can get accepted to a half house, that's fine. But then you have to find your own way after that. In my case, even though with my background, I had great difficulty finding a place to live after my time in the halfway house because I had one was a criminal record and two I had you know thousands of Google search results holding me back. So I would go from place to place and uh, with my name, and then they'd say, "Well, no, we're not, we can't rent to you, can't rent to you, can't rent to you." So finally, I uh, there's a the story behind it. I actually co won a football pool in the, the firm that I was working at part time with with a partner in that firm, and I used all that money to pay my entire year's rent up front. So I went to the landlord and I said. So, so, so I sort of anticipated that we're going to do a, a Google search or a criminal background search. So I said, well, no need to do that. Here's let me pay the whole year's rent at once. And that's the only reason I was able to get a place. And very rare. That's very like most guys can't do that, obviously. So and, and so I, I know how difficult it can be. So this is simply because, I mean, you don't have any, you know, violence in your in your criminal past. No. It's just a question of trustworthiness on the part of the prospective landlords. Is that what you thought I it think- was or just... Uh, I, well, I think in Canada, I think we have less people that go to prison in Canada than the United States. So a lot of most people don't know someone who's been to prison. Right. So if you yeah. say you've been to prison or have a criminal record, there's just a general aversion to de- even dealing with you. So between two people applying for a place, one person has a criminal record, one doesn't. They're not gonna they're not gonna go with a criminal record person. Of course. Because they don't know what that means or what yeah. that implies, yeah. right? And, and that's yeah. what you face in Canada. I know what you know. My own what I do talks to different groups. Americans are far more open to people giving second chances with criminal records. I get contacted every every few uh, weeks or so by an American law firm or a brokerage house or a portfolio management company wanting me to speak to them. Where I say, I've never had that happen in Canada, where uh, those similar groups have come to contact me to have me speak to them about you know information protection. So it's so it's so interesting. And I don't advertise in the U.S. They just they they go out of the way. Someone finds out about me and, and tracks me down. Whereas Canada. I'll send out emails. And I get no feedback whatsoever in, in Toronto or anywhere else in Canada. I think it's more telling about the Canadian society. It's really sounds like it's there's no place. You know what I mean? Like I came home too. It it seems like there's no place for us to come home to and to yeah. rebuild from. You know what I mean? Once you've made that mistake, it just seems like that record follows you on everything. Follows you on every job application, every housing oh, yeah. application. And then, you know, I, I felt the same effects coming out, uh, not opposing to the job uh, uh, area because I've given so much to the John Howard that has given it mm-hmm. to me. But um, seeing like an, even applying for housing, it's, you know, it's it's not fair. You know what I mean? And like if people are going to come home like or come back yeah. to society, like there's got to be a place for them. Otherwise, where are they going to go? They're going to go to a shelter. Like- you know what I mean? Going to go to some shelter. No, it's true. You know, going to be warehouse somewhere, and it's it's not that's not or, or, starting over yeah, or very unstable housing. Yeah, sleeping on couches. Even or, putting somebody yeah. back, like they don't realize. Like I know you're talking about white collar, but I'm just talking in general. Mm-hmm. If sure. you take any offender that came out of like low class housing or something like that, and then put them back into that, you see what I mean? You're 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 just right. putting another part of the problem in another end of the city, which always, which is already affected by problems because that's the only way that they can rent. 
Yeah. You know yeah, what I, mean? I always say, I, I, tell people, I tell people, it's very short-sighted on the government's part that you, it, this is something you should focus on, what happens after prison. I know in the UK, they have like a ban the, bo- ban the box program where you want to help people have criminal records not be discriminated against. In the US, there's programs that, you know, we're actively trying to hire ex-offenders or a, a ba- banish discrimination against them. Whereas in Canada, it's like, oh, well, you're, you have a criminal record? Okay, it's too bad. But there's really not that extra step. No one cares. And you're right. If you don't have a stable place to live, even if you don't want to commit a crime, you, you are more likely to commit a crime because you, you're obviously more depressed or other problems around you or where you're living. Whereas guys, I know like a lot of guys I went to the time with, they just want to reintegrate back to society. They just want that chance. Mm-hmm. They don't want anything special, nothing mm-hmm. extra handout. They just want the chance not to be discriminated against so they can move on with their life and start contributing to their families, et cetera. Yes, and that's the, that, I think that we don't have that in Canada, at least that mentality in Canada. I think we need to build it, right? I think it, it, I think it starts right here by us doing this. Like, just bringing awareness to the problem just like you do. You know, painting the perfect picture. Like, these people, mm-hmm. gotta, we got to come home uh, and back to society. So yeah. if the home is not healthy, then we got to find somewhere else to go, um, you know, that's more healthy. You know, a lot of people think that when we're separated, we're not thinking, you know what I mean, while we're in there. Right. What did I do? You know what I mean? How did this all go wrong? Like you were saying, you and your partner, the, the after mm-hmm. sight, right? Um, yeah. Having that, having that um, ability to to be strong, I, I you know I commend you on that, man. Because you you know you you you're painting pictures for people to understand that you know this can really happen to you. Think twice, you know what I mean? Because yeah. just like it happened to me, it can happen to you. So when I when I speak to people, I, I say like I'm not, I I say something like I don't expect any of you to commit a crime, but you know throughout your life you've probably done something that. It could, if it gone a different way, a different route, let's say dri- drinking and driving a little bit or, mm-hmm. or speeding, something that if gone wrong, you might have put ended, ended up in prison somehow, right? Yeah. So that could, but for, you know, could have been you. And then they, they can appreciate, you know, and then what can happen to you if you go to prison? In my case, you have, you know, a lot of bad events that happen in prison, et cetera. So you never know where it leads. So you should, I think, I think I tell people, just be, and a lot of people are gracious towards someone who's in prison say because they see themselves in that situation and they, you know, they might be more helpful and give people a benefit of the doubt. You raise a very um, significant and, and timely issue, which is the housing issue. And, um, I mean, the government does have a national housing strategy. I think we all need to work very hard to make sure that the homelessness that uh, former prisoners experience is not ignored in that, um, right. in that housing strategy. And I know that you're working with an organization and trying to help prisoners find some housing. Do you want to tell us a little that bit about that? That is correct. The group is called Restorative Justice Housing, Housing Ontario. It's a, a, a registered charity. It was set up to help people, ex-prisoners who get out and don't have family connections or their financial means to find a place to live and who face the same thing I did when I got out with the discrimination and trying to get housing. So what we do is we try to find three bedroom units in Toronto, somewhere near a subway line so they can have access to their travel. Mm-hmm. And uh, we rent the, the unit directly, and then we have the, the three ex-prisoners come in, and they pay whatever they can towards the rent. Wow. And this chair do subsidizes the rest. So it's a market. We're paying market rates for, for, for units. And so that guys can end up living in, let's say, a better quality place than they could afford otherwise. Yeah, yeah. With the money Just like we have. were talking about. Wow, that, that, yo, wow. You're blowing my mind. And, and right it, now. there's also an element is the fact that they have a sense of community because the, the charity has uh, volunteers that would visit them, help them reintegrate society, help them, you know, assist them in certain ways that they can reintegrate. So I think, and, and and it, it, it doesn't have to be a religious element, although the, the, the volunteers are largely religious. But so they're just, they saw a need in society of, of ex-prisoners sort of being abandoned, in a sense. And then, you know, a lot of them falling back into crime. And then they, that ends up costing society much more money. And they, so they've tried to take this little step here as a model program to see if it works. And, uh, and well, hopefully it does. So that's my, that's my part, a little part-time job I do for them. 
let's just say to those people, whether they're religious or not, man, thank you, thank you, uh, and I'm patting, I'm patting you on your back, like for for going in and doing that because um, I understand how hard it is, you know what I mean, to be out here at times and like having to, even just someone. You know, I don't care what religion you are. Is this, is this as long as I have someone to talk to who's, uh, you know, helping to try to normalize me? You know what I mean? And you know, help me to readjust. That's that's amazing, man. Thank you. It, it's it's funny you say that because when I, when I was interviewing for that job, I said to the, I started by saying I want to thank you because I know there's no glory in it helping ex prisoners in society. No one's gonna pat you on the back for going out of your way to help. Oh, but I will. <laughs> I'm one of them. <laughs> well, like, I'll hug you. Yeah. I'll hug you too. <laughs> You generally, know? yeah, generally, but you would, but, but the society as a whole largely does not. Yeah. But they, so they got involved because they saw a need, that, you know, because they, and it is a need that, that, you know, I would argue the government's not really looking at focusing enough, and it, it's sort of it's their own detriment because again, the long term cost, you know, what it costs to keep a guy inside, right? A max it might cost a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, or even a minimum, it costs a hundred thousand dollars a year, where it's much cheaper to subsidize his rent, in this case through his charity, you know, maybe a few thousand dollars a year. And the guy's a stable place to live and maybe have assistance finding a job, et cetera. But men and women too, not just the men, by the way. Yeah, it really is somewhat consistent with that housing first model. Once somebody is housed, then you can start to look at the rest of the needs. Well, then you have. build on them as human yeah. beings. Like, I mean, you know, you're, right. giving, you're giving, you're giving the house, house, stable house first, you know, employment, a friendly, decent, acceptable understanding employment that comes afterwards these people want to work i want to work like there's people that really do want to work and just support so as long as they have that balance of you know their boss understanding you know that you know they're going to come in there and perform like everybody else you know what i mean and you know not you know uh not have uh not have any you know serious situations like i mean they can people can be trusted like i i i've had to earn what i have right now and i you know i i'm thankful for that uh, but you know, it's 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 grateful be, to be in a position to be able to, you know, have some responsibilities again, and you know, feel whole and uh, feel like you're contributing. Because, like I said, you just you're just going to continue to open up every door for that human being who needs that attentive attention right then and there, for that person to grow and not revert back to fucking criminal behavior. Yeah, I think I think a lot of guys they don't want anything special. They just want to be treated like a normal person. And a normal person can get a place to live. You know, they don't get discriminated by something they did 20 years ago, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You, know, it, you assume the guy did his time, he paid his, and, you know, he's, he's remorseful, et cetera. He's re- and now he wants to get back to society. He says, you know, if a guy wants to get to follow a criminal lifestyle, he can. And, he can, you know, financially it might be easier to doing that. So if a guy's, you know, struggling, trying to get a place to live, get a job, et cetera, you should know he's, or at least see him as someone committed to trying to be a better person. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, and, uh, and I think that's what, and I think that's what we try, that's what charity, restorative justice, housing, Ontario is trying to do. Give, give people a chance in that regard. Now, have you have you been successful in finding some places for uh, for? for uh, well, I, think here, that's, I think it's largely it's men, question. right? Is it largely? It's men? largely men, but we're we're not not exclusive to men. So we're also looking for, for women also. But uh, there there's more of a need for men in, in the Toronto area. You know, to be candid, that's true. Uh, again, uh, uh, what I found so far is that we've had units that are available, but when you tell them that will rent to us, but then you tell them the people that will be residing there are ex prisoners. Then they want to know what kind of crimes they did, et cetera. Then if you, let's say we said, well, we won't do sexual offenses. We'll just have three ex-prisoners. And then you still have the hurdle of, well, is there liability for us if we have ex-prisoners in like one unit in our building? So it's so much easier for people to say no. There are people who are open to it, but, you know, nine nine out of ten times the automatic answer is no. And Or they'll say, maybe, but you've got to pay double the rent of anyone else. And then, you know, you say, like, why? (laughs) There's no reason, you know, we have insurance and everything else. So they just want to sort of almost extort 
uh, money from your own desperate situation. Yeah. So yeah, so there's a, you're 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 facing some some hurdles. Yeah, I, I would say if anyone listening, if you have a three bedroom unit, we'll, we pay market rates. It's guaranteed rent. If you you know it, please uh, email me Joseph at our jho.ca, uh, and uh, I'd love to talk to somebody like that. And, and is it exclusive? Like what what like area? It's starting it. Yeah, we're starting in Toronto uh, because that's where the, 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 the volunteers are largely based. Okay. And uh, our, our goal, if it, it succeeds well enough and we have different uh, you know, private funding, et cetera, is to expand it to where there's need in different cities. Toronto is a lot of need because of how, there's sort of a, a housing crisis in a sense. It's a very tight market. Rent, so rent, rental rates are, rates are much higher. Yeah. Yeah. Very expensive. Like, you can imagine someone gets out of prison, even if you want the one bedroom, it might be like $1,800 a month in somewhere in Toronto, anywhere near a subway. Uh, to travel. So that's a lot, that's out of the many people's budgets that are present, obviously. Well, this is terrific. This is, and we wish you very well with that, um, that initiative. It's terrific. Thank you. Most definitely. It's, it's a need that needs to fill. And again, I would say, you know, there's someone in government listening. This, this is, this is a volunteer group stepping up, which is this is something that I would argue that government should do after, or part of the prison experience, you know, as well as just, you house a person. Yeah, maybe it, put should them be ma- yeah it should be mandatory. Uh, that, and it saves money in the long run for, mm-hmm. for everyone. Taxpayers yeah. and governments, it saves money in the long run. No, most definitely. And people, you know, the the, the citizens who are listening, uh, you have to, we, we all have to understand it. When you come out, if you don't have a place to go, these people will commit crimes if they feel the desperate need to get a hotel, to have to, you know what I mean, to have to re, mm. you know, re, resituate. So you don't, you don't, don't put that on other people coming out. Put it on the government to say, listen, kick them in the pants right now, and start the program uh, that rehabilitates uh, housing for these guys to come back to. You know, you, you, for every one dollar, you'll save ten dollars down the road because this is a person not committing a crime in the future. This is a person maybe gets a job, becomes mm-hmm. becomes a taxpayer, yeah, becomes, becomes a, a yeah, law-abiding citizen. Yeah. Yes, most yeah, definitely. absolutely. I mean, there's real problems with the ongoing stigma and prejudice against people who have committed crimes in the past, and it yeah, you really need to focus on that as well. When I speak to different groups, I say, imagine yourself. You have like, you know you know your sentence is ending in say, a couple of weeks, and you have nowhere to live, and no one to help you find a place to live. How would you feel? You'd feel an incredible amount of stress. A desperation, you know, confusion, mm-hmm. uh, isolation. So, this, so this is a, these are normal feelings of someone who wants to get back to society, become a, a positive member. You know, yes. if you want to get go back to criminal lifestyle, he's not worried about those things. Mm-hmm. But if someone says, "I want to avoid crime, I want to become a, you know, a sort of square John," as they say, get mm-hmm. back into things, it, this is a concern. It's a natural concern for anyone who has. And for the inmates who are listening, and if you have these concerns, please, like you, you guys already know the number. It's six one three two eighteen seven five nine two. You, you guys can reach out to us now so that we can start, you know, trying to get more guys, especially guys who are coming to Ontario, uh, where, to, where we're, we're, we're going to try to get this program. Like, uh, how do we help with housing down there, like, uh, in, in terms of, like, finding a rental that's going to help you guys? Like, what do we got to do? Like, in which, which area? You know, like, there's a lot of halfway houses all over the city. We don't want right. to, we're going to try to, like, you said subway lines, right? Subway lines yeah, are really would, good, right? This would right? probably be post-halfway house, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this would be at warrant expiry and... That's right. That's right. Yeah, post, post-parole, post post-warrant expiry time. That's right. Yeah. Someone who is really not connected to the system anymore. Yeah. Yes. You know, yeah. And people think that's a small... That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's everyone. You know, everyone's done time. They don't want to commit a crime again. They're warrant expired. Now here they are in the street. Yeah. Maybe they don't have... By, you know, that's why we focus on inmates have been inside many years. By that point, maybe they have no more family connections. The family's right. passed away or, le- or you isolated them, et cetera, right? So what do they do? You don't make yeah. a lot of money in, inside, as you know. You don't come up with a big packet. 
So it's, it's often very difficult to find a decent place to live, obviously. One of the things that we're looking at, I, I think I may have emailed you about this, is trying to develop some capacity for prisoners and former prisoners to contribute to the development of housing stock that would be made available for for um, uh, former prisoners in the community. So it's, uh, you know, it's still at the early stages, but finding places for these people to live is a significant challenge. It's true. I think, you know, let's say builders or property managers, someone has to almost not like necessarily volunteer something, but say, I'm going to do this something, this, this social enterprise element of my business. I'm going to put, you know, put this these number of units for, for this type of good otherwise. Because again, we mentioned that it's very expensive in Toronto. So if you say, and at market rates, I don't expect people to lose money. So that's right. why this charity is stepping in to pay at market rates. So whatever it is, it is. We just need someone that say these units will will allow you know ex offenders to live here. Uh, you know maybe under the charity or directly, or not going to discriminate against them, just to give them a chance. And maybe even a pilot project somewhere. Right. I think all we need is that some builders that have some successes with that. They you know spread that way. What What is it like? Why do we have to announce that these are ex offenders? Like, it can't can't the charity just be like seizing like our our renting from the property and then subletting to, you know what I mean? Like, no, it's a, it's an excellent question. The, the issue is here now with, you know, the, the accessibility of com- computer technology, every, every uh, landlord wants to know who's living in their unit. They want, they want that. Everyone I've spoken to want a copy of the ID, right? Can't they have that cleared list through you? Like if you, if you say, if you say like, yeah, I'm the one I'm, you know, okay, this charity, boom, I'm, we're renting this, uh, this house. You know, um, these are the names. These are the names of the individuals in the house. Like I'm, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the landlord. These are the names. These are the names that I've approved in the house. Like, isn't that doesn't that just circumvent the bullshit? Just excuse my language. It, but. It, it, it would if you wanted to not have full disclosure. I think that the charity wants to also change the public tone about ex prisoners. So we don't want to secretly hide three ex prisoners in a unit, right? Mm-hmm. We want to say. We want to be honest about it and open about it so that when it succeeds, people, people will, you know, the next person who's not connected to us might want a unit who has a criminal record. They won't discriminate against that next person. But the, it's a bigger picture than just getting a place for three guys. It's almost mm-hmm. trying to change the attitude of the landlord towards people with criminal records going forward the rest of, you know, yeah. years to come. Yeah, yeah. I, think it's a, I think it's a big project and I think it's very necessary. Well, as again, if there's a landlord out there in Toronto listening, uh, Joseph at rjho.ca, email me and uh, I'd love to talk to you. We will be bringing you another episode of Voices Inside and Out. If you would like to comment on our show and or contribute to the show personally to keep this pilot project going, please send your donations to the John Howard Society of Canada marked Voices Inside and Out.